Hi, this is Serena, founder and director of Breaking Taboo. Today, I'm sitting here with Gabriella Powers, who is an author and a digital artist, and she is here to share her story about uh, her, exp her experience with domestic violence. So thank you so much for joining us, Gabriella. I also know that she's a huge fan of ours and Breaking Taboo. I think uh, we often see her comments and um, uh, messages and, and DMs. So thank you so much for supporting us. She's also designed a couple t-shirts shirts for us as well. Um, although, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get on our, our website. Our website right now is in the process of uh, getting fixed. There's some kinks we're trying to work out. So that's why we haven't been posting um, new things in, in a while, but hopefully that will get fixed very soon. But Gabriella, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, Serena. Um, I'm actually doing really well, considering that I'm seven months pregnant and it's the middle of summer. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so I count my blessings. I'm, I'm doing well, better than I deserve, so. <laughs> That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Do you know if it's a girl or a boy, or are you keeping it a surprise? It's a girl, and um, it's mine and my husband's first child together, so... Uh, it's also my first girl. I have a boy from a previous marriage, so I'm kind of nervous about being a girl mom. It's Aww. a whole new territory. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely um, uh, it's definitely different for for uh, uh, like a, a boy and a girl. But I mean, I can I can just tell you just from being a a daughter, <laughs> I'm sure you, you know yourself, and also having friends that have, you know, boys versus girls. It's a, the good part is that, um, you know, there's a lot more bonding opportunities with the mother, <laughs> with um, with a, a girl, and yeah, and a lot of like girl talk type things that are probably going to happen later in life. So yeah, that's always something to look forward to. Um, so great. Tell me, I mean, pregnant during COVID. Yeah, yes. I've heard. I've heard cases of that. Yeah, how is it going? I mean, um, is it scary? Well, um, it's completely scary. I uh, my, first of all, my husband can't be in the doctor with me for any of the ultrasounds, and this is his first baby, so he's missing out on literally Wait, why not? all the best part. Uh, well, be... they—that's my question too. Uh, my doctor. They, they don't allow anybody in the visits except me. And of course, I have to be masked and um, they take my temperature and everything. And, you know, pregnant women, they run a little bit higher of a temperature anyway. So I always get nervous when they pull out that thermometer. I'm like, I promise I'm, I'm good. I'm not sick. Right, um, right. But also, I'm nervous about giving birth in the hospital just because right. hospitals are so germy and uh, I don't know. I, it's also been 10 years since I've given birth. So uh, it's kind of like doing it for the first time all over again. Um, yeah. But I think that it'll, it'll go well. I, I have some good doctors, so. That's good. Yeah, hopefully they are following the safety precautions. And maybe yeah. it's a matter of social distancing um, so that they can like further follow the safety precautions with your husband. I'm not sure. But um, hopefully he'll get to be there with you when you're in labor. I'm, he absolutely will. I told okay, my good. doctor, I'll give birth in the car with my husband before I will do it in the hospital without <laughs> Right. Him, so yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. Good. Interesting. Interesting. Well, um, thank you so much for for um, 
coming on to our podcast show. Um, I know that you've had quite a journey with mental health and um, with your own personal struggles and um, domestic violence is one of those very taboo subjects that people don't really talk about a lot. And uh, there's a lot of fear around it for a good reason, because when someone is in that situation, um, you know, their safety is literally on the line. Um, uh, so there's a lot of cases, um, tons of cases of domestic violence that go that don't go reported you know, every year, um, uh, because, you know, uh, the, the, the person who is um, being abused um, is literally scared for their lives. So yeah. it's a huge topic. Yeah. So, um, um, so why don't we just start from um, the beginning of, of when, when you first, well, I guess the question is, um, when did you first start realizing that your relationship was one of, of um, domestic violence? Because I know that's, that's something that's difficult for a lot of people because even though they're in situations like this, it's often so mind controlling that they're not even sure. They don't realize that they're in a dangerous situation. So, well, I have to be honest with you. My abuser was my dad. So I was born and raised into a violence of constant, um, an atmosphere of constant violence. And I didn't realize that what I was experiencing was abuse until he discarded me when I was 24, which was about seven years ago. Uh, so it literally took him removing himself from my life for me to have this epiphany and this awakening like, whoa, what did I just come out of? I literally don't know who I am. I don't know who I like. I don't know what to do with my life when he's not telling me how to feel and what to say and what to think. And um, it, was, it was a very crazy experience just looking back on it and thinking to myself, how could I have been so blind when literally I grew up watching him give my mom black eyes and uh, you know she went to the hospital a few times and I think, Serena, honestly, the craziest part of my story is that I was a daddy's girl. So I literally worshipped the ground that he walked on. I, in, in my eyes, he could do no wrong. And I, I can't explain to you how that happened, regardless of how much violence I saw him perpetuating. Um, but my mom and I never really had a very strong emotional bond. Um, she would talk bad about him behind his back all the time. And I think I resented her for that because he, even though he was violent, he would never talk bad about her to other people. And it was just a whole brainwashing type of situation. Um, and then when I started to study to become a counselor, uh, about a year after he discarded me, I started learning about the how your brain is rewired during abusive situations and literally how to rewire your brain into a healthy manner. And I, I started learning about, you know, how narcissists operate and the power they have over you through that manipulation. So, uh, yeah. Pretty yeah, heavy. yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> so, uh, so let's let's start unpacking it. First of all, my first question is, what do you mean by discarded you? So I, for the first time in my life, got a good salary paying job, and I was making more money than him. Um, mm -hmm. And I stopped giving him financial support because I wanted to move out on my own with my son. And uh, he decided that was not okay. So he stole my truck, uh, the only vehicle we had, he stole it. He took 
$400 from me and he left me like literally overnight. I just woke up to him being gone and he took off to Minnesota to go chase after my mother. So he left me with a broken lease and like all this damage in the apartments. And then he ghosted me. He didn't call me, which was very unusual because he was always on the phone with me every hour when he was away. So uh, it took me about three months of this ghosting process to really my mind start opening because the first month I was just crying all the time. What did I do wrong? Why did he leave me? Mm. What could I have done better? And then around the third month when he finally called me and I was on the phone with him for the first time, and he was trying to manipulate me again, I literally had this realization like, whoa, he doesn't really love me. <laughs> so what were, what were the signs that you were noticing um, with the manipulation that, that you were starting to be aware of? So I, a lot of lies started to be unraveled. Um, the biggest thing is that when I was under his thumb, he cut everybody out of my life. So I literally had no contact with my mom, no contact with friends, no other family members. So when I started to be able to have access to those people again, and they started telling me their side of the stories and the stuff that he had said to them about me, it was a big red flag, like, wow, uh, he's a liar. He's literally lying to these people to manipulate them, to get them to do what he wants them to do at my expense. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one of the biggest red flags was just that his stories Lying. were coming and the whole isolation aspect of it. I, mm -hmm. I was shocked. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is definitely something that is common of abusers. They like to isolate their victims um, so that they have more control over over their victims. So, uh, okay, so so later on, you said that you um, learned more about this during um, your studying to be a counselor, um, and. Um, uh, um, there's something you said in there. Unfortunately, I forget because we just went on this huge thing. But, but um, tell me about um, tell me about uh, what you started to. Oh, I remember now. Narcissism. You mm. had mentioned the word narcissism. So, um, what are some of the traits of a narcissistic personality that you realize and that you had to deal with? So the thing about narcissists is that there are several different types of them. So, you know, there could be covert, overt, um, oh my gosh, there's somatic narcissists. So some of them are more sexual. What I was dealing with is that he was very secretively manipulative. So he would literally take my reality and crush it and say, even if I saw something fall out of the sky, he would say, you didn't see that. And then he would literally make me believe that I didn't see what I had seen. So narcissists, the way they gain their power is by having complete control over the atmosphere, over your mindset. You have to think like them. Otherwise, they don't have any power. Uh, and that was one of the biggest things that I dealt with. He literally indoctrinated me throughout my entire childhood and my early adult years to think like he thought. And when I started to rebel against that and have my own thoughts, um, he, he started to lose his power. And for narcissists, they feel, they, they have very fragile egos. So it's kind of like this oxymoron. You see these people who are asserting all this power, but it's because inwardly, they feel so helpless and they can't have any of their 
atmosphere or the way they think questioned because when you start to question that then they're faced with you know challenging their own reality and that that injures them inwardly and that's really what puts them onto a narcissistic rage um i do want to say though not all narcissists are violent but i believe that violence can be also a mental thing not just a physical thing so mm-hmm. there there is always violence on some level even if it's not physical so um mm-hmm. i dealt with the the physical violence a lot you know i got i got my first black eye from him when i was 15 uh you know mm-hmm. he threw coffee tables at my head i'm surprised i'm still alive today honestly i know it's a miracle uh, mm-hmm. because of how violent he was. So, um, mm-hmm. but to be fair, he had more than, he was more than just a narcissist. He also had um, bipolar. So there was a lot of chemical imbalances going on in his own mind. And um, learning about that, for me, it was really revolutionary to understanding why he was the way that he was. Mm-hmm. And that was part mm-hmm. of the problem. And not every victim gets that luxury of understanding what happened to their abuser to make them that way? Yeah, so I think um, that was very well said. That was a very good description of narcissism, um, the narcissistic personality, by the way. Um, And um, I can relate to you on a a lot more levels than you might think. Um, But uh, I I have experienced that growing up as well, um, where it was a struggle to... I, I couldn't have my own opinion on things. I didn't have my own voice on things. And, you know, um, and whether it, it was narcissistic parenting or not, I do know that one of the key characteristics of a child that um, uh, uh, did grow up with narcissistic parenting is that they may be interested in mental health profession. So they may go into psychology, they may go into counseling, <laughs> they may go into whatever. Um, and I think that's because, uh, you know, in an effort to further understand, you know, the like what had happened to them and the family dynamics or whatever, you know, and it is complicated. It's complicated when it is a, a caretaker, some, someone that you um, are supposed to love and, you know, do love and, you know, and um, also, you know, you do learn. And I think, I think that that makes us a more empathetic people because exactly the way that you spoke about your dad, it's like, you know, you understand more what makes people the way that they are, you mm-hmm. know, and instead of playing like the blame game, um, you have the the background and the the knowledge now because you did study it to see that, okay, these are the things that make up a person's personality or these are their own traumas or like who knows what their own traumas were and who knows like what made them whatever. But um, anyway, without going on a tangent, um, you did mention bipolar disorder. So that leads me to another a question, which I was going to ask if he was addicted, if he was like an alcoholic, because a lot of times, you know, um, in abusive uh, families, like so one person is an alcoholic and they're usually the abuser. So, um, yeah. Yeah, he he was addicted to cocaine for the first 10 years of my life. Um, and then after cocaine, it was alcohol and um, painkillers. And then it was methamphetamine. <laughs> it, was, it was always something. There was always the substance abuse issue there. Um, I mean... He, he was always off the chain with it. And it literally, it, it chemically changed his brain. I believe that was part of his deterioration. Um, but also that's a huge sign as well because um, not all narcissists have chemical dependencies, but they have addictions to sex or control. 
um, certain things like that. There's, there's usually always an addiction aspect there. So, yeah. Interesting. And, um, and then my, my other question for you, uh, just to get more of your background is, um, how were you abused? Well, um, for, so for the first 12 years of my life, I saw the abuse. Um, mm -hmm. My mom and dad would fight like these just giant fights in front of me. I'm talking blood and black eyes and broken everything and cops being called. And, uh, and then when I turned 12 and I hit puberty, my dad's perspective of me being his little girl completely changed. Now I was just another whore in his mind because mm. he had very severe womenizing issues um so he started to grab a hold of me he started to talk down to me he started to verbally abuse me he would get like inches in front of my face and scream at me or spit all over my face and um when i was old enough to fight back around the time i turned like 15 and i was like I was a spitfire. I, I, I didn't understand, first of all, what was happening. But second of all, everybody has that thing rise up and then we're, they're like, no, I want to defend myself, you know? Right. Um, survival. Right. The survival instinct, the fight, mm -hmm. you know, there's fight, flight or freeze. I definitely had that fight in me. And there were times that he dragged me out into the front yard and choked me until I, I literally thought I was going to die. Like I, you have one of those moments where your life literally flashes before your eyes and it's all these series of pictures and sounds and that's happened to me more times than I can count. Um, so a lot of the abuse was extremely physical where he would just snap and you could never tell when he was going to snap or why he was snapping. You could be doing exactly what he wanted you to do and he would still just boom, all of a sudden he's got his hands around your throat. Uh, and I mean, he assaulted me when I was seven months pregnant with my, my son, my firstborn. Uh, he slammed me down on the couch and was like on top of me, screaming at me. And, um, you know, I, I just feel so blessed to have survived all of that because when you think that you're going to die, you literally just give up. You're like, you know, what, what's the point? You just surrender. And then that moment of surrender is when he would let go. Uh, he would just take it right to the edge. Um, he did sexually abuse me one time. Uh, there was other sexual abuse that went on that wasn't like physical sexual abuse, but like watching pornography in front of me or, you know, mm. I would it, just a bunch of nasty stuff that's not very savory to say. But, um, you know, he there was one time where he made me walk around the house in lingerie when I turned 18 because he wanted me to go get like a dancer's job. And he would make comments on my body and like critique me in the ways that he didn't like me and, and things like that. And so it was pretty much every level of abuse, psychological, verbal, a lot of spiritual abuse as well. What do you mean by that? Raised, uh, well, I was raised in a Christian church. Um, and he would use the Bible against me. His famous saying was always, your relationship with me is a reflection of your relationship with God. And so mm -hmm. I always thought that God was angry at me and that God hated me because that's how he was acting towards me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he wouldn't allow me to read the Bible for myself. He always told me, oh, you need a teacher to tell you what this means. And so I, I literally had no freedom to explore my spirituality uh, or anything like that. So that, that, that was really difficult because I think the worst thing you could literally do to somebody is, is put that separation spiritually when 
when when your mental and your physical state is separated from your spiritual state you're not a whole being because we are spirit that's my belief anyway we are spirit so if you're not in tune with your spirit you're going to be feeling disjointed no matter what you do so that that took me a lot of years to overcome and, and heal from but thankfully i feel like i've gotten through most of it well, well, that's, um, yeah, that's <laughs> quite, quite a story. And yeah, uh, very thankful that you are um, not only uh, with us, but also thriving, doing well, uh, it seems, and, um, you know, getting yourself um, more empowered with, uh, with what has happened in your life. And, and um, obviously, you have processed a lot of this. And I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of um, self healing. And, um, you know, the blessing in disguise is that you are uh, probably more evolved now than <laughs> a lot of other people <laughs> um, uh, who, who don't, you know, have to have to or are forced to face um, their past and, and understand psychology and things. Um, but uh, I want to ask you, um, so, so when this was happening, in the mindset of, you know, um, being abused, um, did you know, like, do you remember like knowing like, no, this is not right, this is wrong? Do you remember like a distinct time ever where you started to realize that, that like, oh, this way of life that I've always experienced is actually not um, normal or not uh, conducive? And what led you to that realization? So I thought it was normal again, until he discarded me and I started being able to see how other people lived. And, you know, Wait, you it was always- that, Sorry to cut you off, but you said that you fought back, right? And sorry, when did you start fighting back? Uh, I fought back mainly because I was angry. Um, not necessarily because I thought what he was doing was wrong because mm -hmm. to question him was literally like a death sentence. So it was never like a you're wrong situation. It was more or less just like, when you have that violence and you kind of just react to that violence. And so it was more of like a reaction more so than a thought process at the time. Mm -hmm. So what do you um, mean? So you would like try to tell him that something um, that he wasn't right about something or say like, no, you're wrong or, or whatever, disagree with him. And then he would just boom, like blow up at you. And then you would get angry um, in defense as well and, and fight back. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And um I think the biggest epiphany for me when I started to really get a solid understanding that this is not right is when I, again, when I started hearing how, what he was saying to other people about me and, and it shocked me because I, I legitimately thought that, you know, I was his everything. I, you know, his daughter, it shocked me that he could say some of those things about me behind my back when I never once badmouthed him to anybody, no matter what he did. I, I just like I said, I adored him. I worshiped him for whatever reason. Uh, I'm still unpacking that one. I still don't necessarily understand how that happened. Um, that you, you adored him be, um, even though, well, I mean, he's your dad. <laughs> right. your, your primary caretaker. Yeah, he's the mm -hmm. first, one of the first people, human beings that you ever knew. Um, in your life, you know, and he did raise you and he did provide you with shelter and food and all of that, that, you know, um, is equate to, to love. And not only that, he's blood, 
you know, it's biological too. So those are all reasons. Like there's no, I mean, I think it's difficult for people not to um, uh, love their parents. You know, it's, it's, I don't, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't even know if it's 100% possible for them not to feel like a connection with their, their parents, you know, that's just so normal. So um, I wouldn't, you know, get down on yourself for that. And there's also people that are in relationships who, you know, it's not biological and they weren't raised by this person and, and they're being abused and they still love this person. You know, that right. happens also. And it's not like, you know, it's not necessarily, um, I know sometimes people say like, that's not real love, whatever, but you know, you feel what you feel and those mm -hmm. feelings can be very strong at the time. And there's, I, there, it's not like people shouldn't feel ashamed about it. Yeah, I, I think that the number one thing for me is that he made me believe that I couldn't survive without him. So mm -hmm. I kind of misplaced the idea of survival with love mm -hmm. uh, because it was never like a, a warm, cushy, safe kind of feeling that real love brings. It was more or less, it, you know, the abuse cycle is like this. You get abused, there's a big explosion, and then the abuser apologizes, and they try to make it right, and there's this, like, this honeymoon period where things seem like they're going to be okay, and then that's kind of like the reinforcement period, the intermittent reinforcement where your brain is like, oh, okay, this is good, but it's bad at the same time. So mm -hmm. it kind of perpetuates that, that toxic cycle in your mind, and... Um, you know, for people in relationships, uh, let's say a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend situation, I think that a lot of times we just, we have this mindset like, well, it's not going to be better anywhere else. Or maybe I'm the problem. Uh, I've seen a lot of victims take on that mentality because the abuser is always making everything your fault. And mm -hmm. you just kind of start to assimilate that. So... I, I agree with you. Nobody should be ashamed for, for loving because you are a loving person. Like human beings were created for love, you know, like right, that's right. the one thing everyone for is love and safety and acceptance. So mm -hmm. there's nothing to be ashamed about there. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's so, it's so normal and, and natural. Um, um, yeah, uh, so, okay, so later on when when he discarded you, you were forced to break the cycle of abuse, you know, you basically had no choice, so, and therefore you did break the cycle of abuse, and um, and then when you, when you broke it, um, what was that like? I mean, you mentioned that it was scary, right? Or, I mean, I'm imagining it must have been really scary. Yeah, what it, it, what it was, was it like, and what helped? So it, it was terrifying. I, I woke up every morning with this dread inside of me, like, oh, I have to make my own choices. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to wear. I didn't, How I didn't even you? know what kind of I liked. I, I was um, 24. So. Okay. And, <laughs> yeah. and he was, were you like living with your dad at the time? Uh, not, I was, I was living with him up till the point he discarded me. So I, I basically okay. lived with him my whole life. Um, okay. And that was a a situation of codependency um, mm -hmm. because he was disabled. So he only had like a limited income. So I worked and gave him my money. So there's another aspect of that in financial abuse. Um, but anyway, as far as uh, he the healing process going after he discarded me, what really, really helped me was um, <laughs> I would look at myself in the mirror every morning and I would force myself to say something nice about myself, something that 
I liked. Like, you are a beautiful creature. You were created with a purpose. You are going to change the world. Whatever it was that would comfort me at the time. And I felt really stupid doing it, first of all. If you've never talked to yourself in the mirror before, you're going to feel stupid the first few times you did it. But I had always heard about these mantras and things that people would say, these affirmations. And mm -hmm. so... I tried it. I, I wanted to speak that. And what really happens, and, and science actually proves this, you believe what comes out of your own mouth more than you believe what you hear come out of someone else's mouth. So when you constantly hear yourself say these good, positive things, over a period of time, your brain starts to rewire to actually believe those things. So Practicing that was really crucial for me. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I really just dove into my faith as far as, you know, for the first time being able to read the Bible for myself without somebody lording over me, I, I learned how to read Hebrew because mm -hmm. I wanted to read the Bible in its original language. I, I was fanatical, like, I'm never going to have a man tell me what something means again. I want to know it for myself. So it was really empowering to take that into my own hands and say, I, I'm going to make this goal. I'm going to learn this. And when I learned it, I was like, yes, I did it. I am capable. So I think it's a lot of baby steps, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. baby steps that lead to bigger steps. And, and there was a lot of setbacks, too. So yeah. I, I was survivors don't you know the setbacks are part of the healing process healing is not linear at all uh, and if you look at it like you're just supposed to be on this upward scale the whole time you're gonna get severely crushed when you start to fall uh, mm -hmm. but instead I like to encourage people when you start falling it's for a purpose you need to just pause take a step back and really be present in the moment and ask yourself what is this fallback teaching me mm -hmm. what part of my character needs to be renewed in this aspect and it's a very difficult thing to bring those things into self-awareness um, which is why I tell people counselors are great to, to help you get through that if you just don't know the direction you want to go in mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, wise words, definitely. Um, a, a lot, a lot of great advice there. Um, I love affirmations too myself, but I was just thinking, yeah, you know what I need to, I need to, um, cause I, I make them for others also, but, um, I need to do the thing where you stand in front of the mirror and like actually say them out loud also. <laughs> so yeah, no, that's, that's great. Um, so you mentioned that your uh, your dad also had bipolar disorder. Was that diagnosed for him? Was that officially diagnosed? So it was diagnosed, but it was a forced issue. Um, we got into a court battle, um, and I wrote this long, heartfelt letter to the judge and was basically like, look, you need to mandate him to see a therapist to get diagnosed. Otherwise, he's not going to do it mm -hmm. because I'm absolutely positive he has some kind of mental illness going on. Uh, so he was clinically diagnosed with three things. Uh, they're really big heavy hitters, uh, narcissistic personality disorder, bipolar disorder, and borderline personality disorder. Wow. Now, any three of those things by themselves aren't necessarily scary, especially the borderline personality disorder. I know a lot of people who struggle with that, and they're not monsters. They, Again, it's just the chemical imbalance in their brain. But when you have all of those things conglomerated, it's mm -hmm. a giant giant mess plus the substance abuse issues definitely made it worse for him so well substance abuse and mental health often go hand in hand um yeah so he went to the therapist he got diagnosed and then I'm assuming he didn't continue therapy or did he 
No, he basically disappeared into the desert. Oh, <laughs> wow. Was the court mandated that he continue therapy and then he just didn't? Okay. Yeah. He, as far as I know, to this day, he still has several warrants out for his arrest for not complying to what the judge ordered him to do. So, Which was therapy, basically. Just going uh, to therapy. And anger management, uh, mandatory drug tests, um, mm. things like that. So I don't know all the details because... At the time, I, I called the judge and I was like, look, just stop sending me letters about this in the mail. I, do, I don't want to know anymore. I mean, he's out of my life and I don't care. You know, I, I'm done with it. So I basically washed my hands of the whole situation and he lives his life and I live mine. <laughs> wow. You know, that's interesting because um, you'd think that, it, but, you know, we're, we're different. You know, people that seek out self-development and, and uh, are interested in psychology and counseling are always different than um, the people that avoid it, right? But, but it's just, it's interesting always to me because I'm like, you'd think that we'd want to work on ourselves. You'd think that we'd want to know what was up with us so that we can like, you know, live a better, more fulfilling life and make, you know, those around us, like you also live better, more fulfilling lives around us. Um, so you'd think that we'd want to do what it takes to make life easier and better but you'd be amazed like people really don't want to face themselves it is like the scariest and most difficult thing for a lot of people and they will avoid it like the plague they will avoid it like death they will just run away before they ever have to actually face themselves and admit that yes I have a problem and there's something for me to work on and it's not going to be easy it might be hard you know so um, I am unfortunately not surprised that that happens it does happen a lot but I also think the um probably the substance abuse part that's like kind of like a catch-22 you know people need slash think they need like want their substances to survive practically and then once they're threatened if they're not ready to get rid of their addiction and then like the court threatens them like hey I'm gonna take this away from you and it's literally like their survival you know it's like yeah, I'm not surprised they might run away, unfortunately. But again, it sounds like he did not have the emotional capacity. Well, obviously, with all of these mental health diagnoses um, and substance abuse. Um, yeah, he just didn't have the emotional capacity to choose, unfortunately, to choose his um, daughter and, and his um, well-being. And that's nothing, that is not your fault. Like, there's nothing you can do about that. And... I don't, and it's never blame, like, t technically, it's not necessarily his fault either. It is a choice, you know, mm -hmm. but the, you know, it's not like a thing to blame. It's just, he couldn't right. face it, could not face it. No. And that's true. Um, also for narcissists, because in their mind, they're perfect. So literally, but they're not though. Yeah, that's right. another thing I wanted to to touch upon. Yeah, you did such a good job with the with the narcissistic personality description. But yeah, in their mind, yeah, they come across like they're perfect, or they like want you to think that like they're one hundred percent perfect. They'll never admit to a single fault, um, a single flaw, right. or anything. They can never never say that they're wrong. They'll never admit that like they're. Uh, like their opinion is like the truth, you know, and they'll get really triggered if you try to like, you know, tell them otherwise or give them a different opinion, you know, but deep down inside, they're like these scared little, like just really super insecure. It all stems from insecurity. It all stems from, from um, um, the reason why they get so triggered 
is because they're insecure is because you know otherwise you wouldn't get triggered if you're not if you're not insecure like if you're secure about something why would you get so triggered right um especially if it's right. simply a matter of a difference of opinion or admitting that you're wrong or something so it's um yeah it's deep down inside um there's just a lot of insecurity and yeah i think that makes it even harder for a narcissist to seek out help and therapy because that would be like admitting to like literally falling into the insecurity absolutely so one thing i wanted to bring up um another part of my healing process and the way that i I coped was starting to share my story like sharing was coping for me uh, and it was very dangerous Absolutely. in the beginning because of how fragile I was still and I really didn't have a good sense of boundaries so there were times when I would overshare to the wrong person and then get hurt for it uh, so I do like to caution survivors um, to use a lot of discretion um, but I started sharing things anonymously on the internet um, just this is what I've been through. And because I was forced to not talk about it for 24 years, it felt so good to just like word vomit. Like this is everything mm -hmm. I went through. And the more that I shared it, the less scary it became. And now I feel like it's one of my greatest strengths. There's literally nothing about what I went through that I can't talk about. I have to be sensitive to what other people might be triggered about because I'm such an open book of it. So um, I, I do encourage survivors as part of their healing process, you know, maybe start with a journal, uh, start writing out the things you went through and how you felt about it. Get that sense of self-expression mm -hmm. again, because it really empowers you to be like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of my story and it doesn't have to end this way. And I can take it in whatever direction I want to now, because my abuser has no power over me. As long as I bring things into the light, it's only in the darkness where the abuser has the power to manipulate you. Once that's brought into awareness, literally the power just is diminished completely. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah um uh there's a lot of people that have gone through things um are some of the later on in life some of the most self-expressive people out there and i think that does come come from uh well number one having a story to tell <laughs> a story that you know is um um you know uh on on like a different playing field than say the norm of what people go through and then number two um having your voice suppressed for so long you know i can absolutely relate to that i mean i, I freaking built an entire organization around <laughs> you know uh, uh giving people voices and and uh, opening up conversations and um breaking taboos you know so so yeah so a lot of that um yeah growing up and having um suppression um definitely i think all of that are healing tools and and for like the the greater good you know it's for um yeah we turn it into we turn it into something that is beneficial and helpful not just for ourselves but for other people as well and the other thing with like sharing is people need to know that they're not alone absolutely um that that point of relation can be such a powerful tool because i've literally been on the brink of suicide just thinking i'm the biggest piece of crap in the world and nobody else is going through this and then 
you know, taking a moment to step out and read someone else's story or, or watch a, a YouTube video and, and hear how somebody else overcame, not only went through it, but overcame is like, wow, you know what, maybe I could do that too. And mm -hmm. it starts out as a maybe. And then again, you take those baby steps and then you're like, yes, I, I'm getting through this. I can do this. And, uh, it's definitely a huge, huge thing, especially for survivors of abuse, because the isolation when you're being abused is so real um, and debilitating. It, it takes away your autonomy, basically. You don't know who you are, how to make decisions anymore. So, so that, that point of relation and finding your voice and listening to other people's voice is an absolutely huge tool. So I always encourage people because a lot of victims are scared to connect. They don't want to get burnt. They don't want to get judged. They don't want to hear other people's unsolicited advice, mm -hmm. um, which unfortunately happens a lot. People have, I want to say they want to help. So they want to just fix the way that you feel when really you just need somebody to listen to how you feel and say, you know what, that's really heavy. And I'm sorry that you went through that. And that can be so powerful. So um, you know, on the same aspect, I like to encourage people who've never been through abuse before, if you have a friend or a family member that's come through it, just make yourself available to them. Don't, don't look at them like they need to be fixed. Wait until they ask you for advice. Or, you know, if you have something that you want to give them and share with them, say, is it okay if I give you this advice first? Get their permission because uh, victims of abuse, they want to have that power in saying, what, you're, a you're asking me for permission? Let me think about this. Um, yes or no, you know, it, it really helps them in the healing process. So I think that's really important to remember. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, great advice and, and very wise words. Um, I have a question for you. So um, your relationship now, right? It sounds like you obviously you have a, a quite healthy, fulfilling um, relationship. But I also do know that uh, uh, people that have been through abuse, um, especially on an extreme level, do struggle sometimes with relationships later on in life. So has it been a struggle for you? And what were some of the tools that have helped you? So yes, it was a major struggle for me. My first husband, him and I were high school sweethearts. He actually lived through all of that abuse with me and mm. assimilated the character of my abuser. So once, oh, wow. my, once my dad was out of the picture, then I had this husband to deal with that was doing the exact same thing to me. And I had a child with him and our child happens to be autistic and special needs. So it was like, just so scary, uh, all of the different elements in it. Um, and then I, it, it was a miracle the way that it all happened. I ended up divorcing him. And, um, that was a, one of the scariest things I've ever been through. I felt like damaged goods. I felt like nobody's gonna love me. I have this baggage with my kid, you know, especially a special needs kid. It's hard enough to get people to look at other people's children like, yes, I can love you the way that you need to be loved. But um, I, I did. And, and I also have, I had extreme issues with female relationships, like friendships. Um, and why, why is mom, that, do you think? Uh, my mom and I never had a strong emotional bond. She didn't nurture me emotionally. As a child, um, she was always very emotionally cold towards me. So I didn't really know how to facilitate that female bond. Um, I had it with my grandmother. She was my best friend, but she unfortunately died a very terrible death of cancer. And, and watching her die kind of just, it put me into this box. It was like, okay, I, I, I don't 
you know, the best female in the world that I've ever known died. I don't want to know any other females. Like I heard, it was a, a response to trauma. I just wanted to close it off. And I thought that all females just love drama. And I really had a lot of mental work to do around my mindsets because those were all things that my abuser indoctrinated me with. He was a womanizer and a woman hater at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, all women were the devil to him. So mm -hmm. I kind of assimilated that character. Um, but in my, like, my romantic relationships, I really just, I drew a line where it was like, okay, I can see that I'm creating a pattern here. And I, I have the power to stop that pattern, even if I don't know how to stop it right away. So I just shut my heart off to like no dating. I'm not looking for a man to take care of me. I need to learn my sense of independence so that I don't become codependent again. And I need to learn the red flags. I need to learn uh, how to draw up boundaries. And when someone violates my boundaries, don't necessarily take it so personally at first, learn how to have conversations and work through it. Uh, and it, it again was a lot of baby steps. Um, what really helped me is the fact that my, the person I'm married to today, my husband, he's such an empathetic person. He would listen and he would cry with me and, you know, finding a man that would be vulnerable enough to like actually hear what I went through and then cry his own tears because he felt my pain. It was just such a beautiful experience. I just feel extremely blessed for that because I, I feel like it's probably really rare out there nowadays to find men who are in touch with their emotions because mm. a lot of men are abused as well when they're saying, you, you know, you're not a man if you cry and, and all of that, that shaming that goes towards men. So right. um, sorry to rabbit trail. <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you think that, okay, well, I have two questions. First of all, um, do you think that your, did your dad ever tell you about his past and his trauma? Like, do you think he was abused? Uh, he, I know for a fact, absolutely. Um, he made it a focal point and he used it as an excuse constantly. What do you mean? Uh, well, like when I would cry in front of him, he would say, oh, you're not allowed to cry. You need to shut off those waterworks. I was never allowed to cry when I was a kid. And mm -hmm. if I wasn't, then you're not. And, um, and he was unfortunately sodomized when he was a child by oh, a wow. and um, by a family member. Yeah, and uh, when his dad found out about it, his dad freaked out and then basically abandoned him. <laughs> so oh, wow. he, I think that's where his narcissism really started, that, that inward injury where he had to feel like he was perfect, like he couldn't do any wrong because the one person who was supposed to protect him just completely abandoned him and made it his fault and said, you're disgusting, get away from me. And um you know, he, he hopped around to different, you know, homes, like ch children's homes and things like that. He ultimately ended up being raised by his grandparents. And unfortunately, his grandfather was very physically abusive as well. So he started to assimilate those habits and, and those mm -hmm. mindsets of this is how you learn is through violence. Um, so and yeah. unfortunately, that's almost like a, a generational thing. I mean, not in every generation, but it's very common in the older generations. It's just like, 
culturally, like generation wise, it's just, um, you know, there's uh, abuses like nothing. And it's interesting because if you ask the older generations, um, many, many of them um, uh, were abused. Like there's so many, you know, classic stories of like, oh, my dad used to whip me with a belt or, you know, a shoe. Or we even see that in like old cartoons or like old movies. They used to do that in school with teachers, you know, and it's just, it's only very recent that people have been um, seeing abuse, like physical abuse, as damaging and and uh, uh, not the right way to parent or to teach a school school uh, uh, to teach school children. So I mean, that's amazing to me because it's like what what the heck? And I think it's it's all because of psychology. You know, it's all the advancement of psychology and just child development and realizing you know the damages that it, it does. But unfortunately, that was just the way that. They did it back then you know not saying it's yeah. an excuse it's never an excuse right, right? but it's, um <laughs> there, it's there's reason, yeah. cause and effect and that's what i like to tell people it's never an excuse it doesn't make it okay but when you understand that something happened to this person and that caused them to then assimilate that same behavior you can really unpack the the emotional health behind it a lot better where you're not looking for someone to blame. You're not looking for revenge anymore. You can just understand on a more relational level, the cause and effect aspect of it. Um, right. I, it's not that I ever want to sympathize with an abuser because there does come a point where it's, it's definitely a cognitive decision to keep that going. Um, but I, I just, I, I put up a post recently. It was like, there's one thing that abusers and victims have in common and that's the, innate need and wanting to be loved. It's just that abusers go about getting it by manipulating and victims go about getting it by bending over backwards. And neither of them have a healthy understanding of how to actually get and achieve that love that they're looking for. So um, I think when we can boil it down to the, the basis roots of it psychologically, we can understand that we're all on this journey wanting love and some of us have had backgrounds that didn't really teach us properly how to do that. So having to reparent yourself as an adult is a tremendous responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and you're, you're right when you said that a lot of people's worst fear is facing their own toxicity because you feel threatened. Um, but I, I like to tell people if they can just push past that, that momentary feeling of being threatened, they can realize how much power is behind that self-awareness. The, mm -hmm. the first step in any healing process is self-awareness. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's tremendous. So if you can come to that point, you are doing great. <laughs> you are, you're on your way to healing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, for the abuser themselves, often, you know, that's what's lacking is their own self-awareness It's because you know, I was just thinking, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they don't realize the harm that it's inflicting, like they're not even aware of that. And then there's, of course, other times where they are aware, like, you know, mm -hmm. but they just um, choose to do it anyway, or they're stuck in their own patterns or stuck in their own habits. They're stuck in the way that they're raised type thing. So yeah, unfortunately it's just, it becomes a cycle that needs to be broken. Um, and it's, you know, it sounds like you definitely broke it. Um, but I want to get back to the, uh, the, your relationship type thing, the relationship that happens <laughs> later on in life. Um, yeah. So 
there's a lot of mindset shifts that need to happen before you, before a victim of an abuser is able to have a satisfying, fulfilling relationship themselves. Um, So uh, what were some of the conclusions that you had to learn for yourself? How did you learn it? And um, how has it been navigating your relationship now? I mean, obviously the partner makes a big difference also, (laughs) you know, but yeah. Well, I want to say, first of all, that uh, you absolutely have to learn how to love yourself first before you can ever be ready to receive that true love. Um, And it's it's a little difficult because when you have this mindset of self-hatred and you literally look at yourself and you're disgusted, you're like, man, I'm just going to be stuck this way forever. Um, so one of the things that helped me a lot was, like, I couldn't go out of the house without makeup on because I, w- I felt just totally just ugly with my own plain face. And so one day I threw away all of my makeup <laughs> and I said, you know what? You are not allowed to wear makeup until you can look at yourself in the mirror and you can say, wow. I am a beautiful creature without that makeup and I can be comfortable in my own skin. And it was little disciplines like that, that really helped me reach uh, a healthier relationship with myself. Um, A lot of it had to do with my faith as well, just believing that God loves me and that having that higher power on my mind to where I'm, I may be little and I may feel like I'm nothing and I'm insignificant, but <laughs> the the God that created me gave me life for a reason and a purpose. And that was the one thing I clung on to more than anything else, because I, I had to seek beyond myself, but not in a human being. I had to find that, that, that spiritual soundness. So I like to tell people, find your moral center, whatever that may be for you. I'm not here to tell anybody what belief or faith is right for them, find your moral center, learn who you are. What do you like? What do you not like? What are your boundaries as far as um, one of my boundaries? And I told my husband this before we got married is you can't yell at me ever. That is a no go for me. You start yelling at me and I, I will, I will crumble up into this little ball. I already know it because it brings all of that, that, sh- that shame and that guilt. And uh, so that's one of my boundaries and just being so you know open. your triggers. Right. Um, and that's a huge part of my ministry to people is helping them discover what their triggers are. I'm, I'm working on this thing called a trigger journal mm-hmm. uh, that people can use when they, they feel triggered, how to ground themselves and trace that trigger back to their trauma so that they can bring that into self-awareness. And then once you have that self-awareness, you can literally change that trigger to where it doesn't debilitate you anymore. Um, and as a person who struggles with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, that was a huge part of my healing process was learning what my triggers are. Um, and I did a lot of that in my relationship with my husband. Um, but for people who aren't in a relationship, uh, I, I would highly recommend that you just learn how to spend time with yourself and enjoy your own company. Because when you can be satisfied in your own company, you, you will never create another codependent relationship ever again. You will realize I'm all I need. You know, I don't necessarily need another person to validate me or make me feel important or wanted. And that was a huge, huge part of the healing process for me. So now in my marriage with my husband, we've been married for five years. Um, Congratulations. 
Thank you. It's, uh, you know, it was actually, they say that the first five years of any marriage are the hardest. And I would absolutely agree with that, especially with all the baggage that I came into the relationship with, not to mention the baggage he came into the relationship with, because he has his own separate story of abuse. Um, so we were both kind of meeting each other in this point where we both knew we had this toxicity and that it wasn't each other's fault. Um, mm -hmm. So you kind of got to go into these relationships with the, the mindset and the idea that I can own my own toxicity. I don't ever put my own feelings onto my husband as his responsibility. I don't say you made me feel this way. Mm -hmm. Instead, I reword it and I say, you know, when you did this, I started feeling this way. And mm -hmm. I think this is why. And then we would just have conversations that kind of unpacked well, what's the root to that? You know, why would your behavior cause, you know, that, that feeling in me? Instead mm -hmm. of making it his responsibility, I made it my responsibility. There's something in me that's reacting to this that I need to understand about myself. So mm -hmm. I just can't stress enough how important it is that victims and survivors of abuse and trauma um, and, and people who struggle with mental health issues just learn how to be in their own presence and be okay with the quiet times with themselves. They don't always have to be busy or doing something or distracted. Just learn how to love yourself. And, and that's, a, that's a huge process and it looks different for everybody. So, Right. Yeah. Wonderful. Amazing. Um, and uh, I think, you know, one of the keys that you're, you're uh, talking about in the relationship, I really love how you said how you handled, you know, your own triggers and by, by basically taking a good look at yourself and making it your responsibility and mm -hmm. then having an open and honest communication with mm -hmm. um, your husband about it. That is so important. And and, you know, that's what I think in a relationship. It's that the most important thing, not like, you know, taking ownership of, of your yourself and, and what you do and responsibility, being able to say, yes, this is what I did, you know, like, um, uh, you know, and these were the consequences. But then number two, a huge thing is communication. You know, I think that's key and being able to and open and willing to actually sit down and have a heart to heart and have that talk about whatever it is, is bothering whomever, you know, instead of either A, just brushing it off or B, you know, um, being triggered that you're having the conversation at all. I mean, you'd be amazed. A lot of people are, are simply just unable to unfortunately have the communication. And I'm not just saying in a relationship romantically, I mean, in family dynamics and um, friendships in any relationship at all. Um, again, you know, like, our slogan says kill silence save lives like literally mm -hmm. if you take that if you take that slogan to be like and breaking taboo like literally in any aspect of your life it will I guarantee you improve your life <laughs> tremendously is like a, a philosophy to live by yeah so um I think that's so important and it's amazing that both of you are able to do that. And I wanted to specifically talk about this because you did mention that both of you were bringing your own traumas and your own abuse stories and that you were both, um, you know, uh, uh, going through your own, not fully healed from your own mental health journey, although you were doing the healing. So 
So that's something I want to speak to because I've heard, um, you know, I've heard conflicting opinions about this too. Some people say that you shouldn't be in a relationship until you fully healed yourself because Mm -hmm. you will be bringing that baggage into your future relationships and it's bad for a relationship. Other people, you know, um, say that it's uh, how important it is to have a good support system when you're Mm -hmm. going through things and when you are trying to heal and that support system can be your significant other, you know, and, um, you know, and then of course, you know, I believe in like growing together and, and of course the self-development together. Um, so I just, you know, um, what are your thoughts? Like if someone, if someone were to tell you, um, the school of thought where they say, you know, you shouldn't be in a relationship unless you're fully healed. What do you have to say to that? So I would, agree to a certain aspect. Um, It really boils down to, again, knowing your own self and what you can handle and what you can't handle. Um, But it also has a lot to do with the other person and where they're coming from. Um, I think the reason that it worked for my husband and I is because we both came into it with the same open mentality that we both know we have things to work on and we're going to do it together and we're never going to blame each other. Um, so it was a healthy situation for me. However, if he hadn't been like that, (laughs) you know, or if I hadn't been like that and I had been more so just continuing that toxicity and not really being aware that it's my responsibility, um, or even the communication aspect of it, then it, it probably wouldn't have worked. So, um, the thing about uh, my husband and I is I was on my healing journey, you know, about a year before I met him. And I had, I was starting to gain a good footing of knowing myself, loving myself, knowing what I wanted in a partner and not being afraid to pursue that necessarily, but also being guarded and having enough boundaries to know when I see a red flag to call it out and to talk about it. And if the other person is not willing to talk about it, then that is, that leads to another red flag that maybe this relationship is, is too toxic and we need to put a pause on it until we can both have that self-awareness. So mm-hmm. I don't want to say that it's impossible, but I, I am one of those people who strongly advocates for know yourself before you jump into another relationship. Otherwise, it is inevitable that you will perpetuate that toxicity again because without that self-awareness, you're basically going into things blind and you're just acting on your past trauma without knowing it. So um, it's kind of an oxymoron there, I guess, uh, if if you can make sense of that. When you get to a certain point where you're comfortable with yourself and, and you know what you want and you find that in another person, then I encourage people, take the leap, um, but do it knowing that it's not going to be perfect. The other people are always imperfect. It's impossible to find a perfect human being. So go into it with the mindset that when your partner or your friend or your coworker, anybody you're trying to have a relationship with, somebody in your family um, makes a mistake, you know, you both have to have the willingness to talk through it. And when the other person isn't willing, then you have to be willing to drop it and walk away and and reinforce that boundary so that you don't slip back into that toxicity yourself. So what, what are some, um, so let's elaborate on that, that tool, um, when the other person isn't willing to talk about things and you want to talk about it, um, and you said, drop it and walk away and reinforce that boundary. So what does that look like? So that's like 
um, not pushing somebody when they say, you know, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Don't argue with a person about that. You're never going to convince somebody else that you're right and they're wrong because that's, that's just a foolish thing to do. So instead of focusing on necessarily who's right and wrong, focus on where the peace is. Uh, if there's no peace in the conversation, then it's time to say, you know what? you're right and uh you know this conversation needs to end and we'll just leave it there and um a lot of times i'm a firm believer that you can't leave things open-ended so uh you can't necessarily come back to that person again and act like nothing happened you know in order for there to be a relationship there has to be trust that this is a safe space and if there's never a safe space and it's always just left open-ended because the other person is very obstinate to that, then it's a good sign that that person doesn't need to be part of your healing journey, um, at least for now. And you could just tell them that, you know, I, I'm moving in a different direction and I need a different type of support. So for now, I'm just going to have to cut, cut this relationship off and maybe we can come back to it in the future when we're both feeling ready. Um, it, it really, it depends on, you and know, the boundaries that, that you're talking about. Right. Right. Um, just knowing when somebody's not healthy for you, regardless of how much you love that person, because you can love a toxic person and feel like you want them in your life, but you know, they're bad for you. And when you know that they're bad for you, you have to reinforce that boundary, hold yourself accountable and say, you know what? I can still love this person without them being in my life right now. Um, and that, that has a lot to do with the way you think about a person too. Um, a lot of people fall into the trap of wanting revenge and seeking that, that anger. They're really satisfied with that anger and like, oh, this person just is so terrible or whatever. Um, I like, I like to say, you know, mind your own business. <laughs> Don't think about that other person in that aspect. You have no business thinking about them when you need to focus that energy on yourself. Um, it really just steals away your emotional and your mental energy to do anything for yourself when you're so focused on the other person. So one of the boundaries I like to um, encourage survivors to draw is when when you're in a relationship or friendship with somebody and they're just sucking all of your attention away to where you just literally have no time to think about anything that has to do with you and you're so focused on how they're acting, then you need to put a pause on that relationship and, and reevaluate what's going on there. Um, because when they're, when they're just energy sucking you, then you're not going to be healing. You're just going to be acting out of that trauma continuously. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think that, uh, yeah, and I think that even, you know, if you find yourself in a relationship like that, that's kind of like, well, what, what types of trauma is it that you are trying to deal with or replace or avoid that you're even in a relationship um, that doesn't work, you know, type thing. I think uh, there's, a, there's also a school of thought that, um, uh, a relationship school of thought that says, uh, we get into relationships that help us heal our own unresolved traumas. And I mm -hmm. think that is so, so incredibly true. <laughs> um, yeah, like our unresolved traumas with our parents or the life, whatever, past relationships. So, and, and people often choose relationships because that relationship is helping them heal traumas that they need to heal and they need to face in themselves. So it's almost like, almost like a backwards healing <laughs> 
process, <laughs> you know, whether it works or not. But um, yeah, so that's the other thing. You can't really use a relationship necessarily to heal your trauma. It doesn't really work that way. Um, of Very course, the, the other person can be supportive, of course, but you know, it's just, um, um, if you're choosing and this is, we don't realize this, it's subconscious, you know, it's, right. yeah. So that's, what's scary about it. But, um, but yeah, oftentimes you're choosing a person because there are things that you need to work on in your past <laughs> or yourself or, you know, things that you need to resolve. So, um, yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, well, uh, we are pretty much at the end of um, this uh, uh, podcast. Um, it's been amazing having you. Um, and I really enjoyed your words of wisdom and advice and hearing, you know, it's always the toughest journeys that give the most wisdom. I think, you know, so, uh, and it definitely, yeah, it definitely sounds like you've been doing, you've been working hard at your own self-development also, and, um, your own, uh, ability to evolve into the person that, uh, you want to be. That's what I always say, you know, it's not when people say like higher, good, you know, greater self, like whatever, it, ultimately mm -hmm. it's, it's basically, who do you want to be? Like you are the determinant of right. that, you know? Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. So, uh, any last words? <laughs> I, I just want to say thank you for having me on and, and, um, you know, giving me the opportunity to share my voice again. Um, and I want to encourage anybody out there who's inspired by the things that we talked about today. Uh, you know, continue to follow breaking taboo. You can find me on Instagram at not a doormat. And, um, I have a book out there called The Devil is a Narcissist. If you're specifically struggling with narcissistic abuse and how to heal from that, um, I kind of wrote a book to help you um, navigate through those steps. I have all kinds of free resources I give out, the eight A's of healing and, and little just booklets. I, I run a blog and all that stuff. So um, don't be a stranger. You know, my DMs are always open and I, I do have a free counseling form on my website, gabriellapowers.com. So if anybody out there, I just, I want to share my heart with you guys that um, you're not alone ever. And if, if we can email back and forth and I can help give you some peace of mind where you make it through another day, I'm absolutely here for you in that capacity. So uh, don't be a stranger. And thank you again, Serena, so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Of course. Well, thank you so much, Gabriella. It was a pleasure. And um, I'm sure we will be in touch. I'm sure I will see you <laughs> in our Breaking Taboo community. So bye. Have a great day. Thank you so much for watching, everyone.